Glad that we're here to study the Word together, and uh, <clears throat> excited to, uh, if you weren't here last week, you missed a, a great service. Blake and Sammy Donnelly were here sharing about uh, the missionary work that they're doing with uh, Free Burma Rangers, both in Burma and also in the Middle East and Syria and Iraq, and uh, would invite you, if you're curious at all what I'm talking about, that they have a, there's a a prayer card. All of our missionaries have stuff back on that rack, right behind that door that's open, right back there in the middle of, of the room. And uh, feel free. That's free for all of you. Take them. Put them on your fridge. Put them in your Bible. Pray for them. Pray for our other missionaries. It was a great week last last week, and uh, they've not left yet to go back to uh, Southeast Asia. They're still traveling around to different churches uh, in the Northwest and down into uh, California. Oregon, some places such as that. Uh, we've been studying through, as a normal pace, and we're coming back to the book of 1 Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians, of course, written by the Apostle Paul, uh, where he's addressed these issues. And I know for many of us it's a reminder, reminder but it's a good reminder. Uh, gives us an idea of where he's going as he's writing here. Uh, he addressed issues such as leadership, wisdom, immorality, conflict. Those are the four that we have so far. We can kind of ask ourselves a question in each situation when it comes to leadership. Uh, we can ask ourselves this question. Does my preference promote or hinder unity in the body? Let's be real frank, real honest, real transparent this morning. We all have a certain preference when it comes to leadership in our life, or especially leadership in the church. We like how certain people uh, preach, other people, you know, put us to sleep. I listen to a lot of sermons while I'm driving the tractor, so I'm no different than you guys. I don't want to listen to somebody that's going to put me to sleep while I'm driving a tractor because I don't want to park a 30,000-pound tractor in the Colville River. It's not a good thing. That cons that's considered a bad day farming, right? So we have preferences. The question we have to ask ourselves does my preference promote or hinder unity in the church? That's what Paul was dealing with in the first four chapters. Blended in with that is the idea of wisdom. Ask yourself this question, am I prone to seek, believe, or implement cultural or worldly or godly wisdom? Am I prone to seek, as a first reference for wisdom, am I, am I prone to seek that from the world to gain the world's perspective, to gain my cultural perspective. And I want to say that that's not always bad. It's not always evil in that sense. But am I putting it above God's wisdom? The third one, chapter 5, the Apostle Paul comes right out of the gate in chapter 5, talking about immorality being accepted in the church. And the question we have to ask ourselves then is, how can I promote purity in the fellowship? Paul took some harsh measures in chapter 5. But he did it with purpose. He did it with intention. He did it to promote unity. Uh, he did it to promote purity in the fellowship. It, he was saying enough of this, anything goes. Uh, we can't have that. So how can I promote, how can you promote purity in the fellowship? And you might say, hey, it's real easy for you, Mark. You're the one up here teaching. I'm going to propose to you I'm going to propose to you parents specifically that your job 
in promoting purity in this fellowship is way more important than mine. I'm not saying that mine's not important. I'm just saying that I believe as a parent and as we've raised our kids that that job was way more important promoting purity as a parent in the fellowship was way more important than just showing up and hearing something for an hour on a Sunday. Okay? Your job's way more important. We want to do as church leadership, we want to do everything that we can possibly do and we're doing a lot of things. And we have more things coming down the pipe that are, that are going to be beneficial, good teaching, conferences, so on and so forth. We're doing all that we can do. We want to do all that we can do. We want to meet you guys where you're at in your point of need in promoting purity in the fellowship. That coming from your leadership here at the church. I didn't ask the question of the guys ahead of time, but no doubt they would all say, elders and deacons, absolutely, we want to do that. How can I promote purity in the fellowship? The, <clears throat> the fourth question in regards to conflict, which was the first half of chapter 6, and I realize as we've read through two weeks ago, as we read through the first half of chapter 6, it was specifically talking about lawsuits amongst believers. I can't think of a single lawsuit that wasn't at its infancy just a conflict. I use the word conflict. I realize what Paul's saying. He says, hey, you guys, are, you guys have gone so far. This is from two weeks ago. You guys have gone so far in your conflict that you're just taking it to the, to the worldly judges and not handling it in-house. But at its infancy, even a lawsuit at one point was just a simple conflict. Now, I use that word simple as far as it was just an issue between uh, one or two or a small group of people that became bigger and bigger depending upon how it was handled. The question circles around the idea of conflict is this. Do I primarily deal with conflict inside or outside of the church? Do I primarily, do I have a tendency to deal with conflict inside of the fellowship? Do I seek other believers' help in resolving conflict? Or do I handle my conflict outside of the body of Christ? Am I prone to just say, hey, oh, I got a lawyer. I know a guy that used to live in our community, and you get him talking long enough, and immediately he says, man, I got this good lawyer in Spokane. Man, he's the best. He just, he just fixes everything for me. And that was his knee-jerk reaction to any point of conflict uh, in his life, is just to spend money on a lawyer to resolve it. So as we come to this midpoint in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul again turns to the topic rolls back into the topic of purity. Uh, without a doubt, it's the largest area of struggle, largest area of struggle that the Greek culture dealt with is this er situations in, in the area of sexual purity. I think that we can say unequivocally, inside of Christianity, sexual purity is the number one issue across the board that men, women, and kids deal with. It affects everything of how we think, how we behave, how we process, how we view other people, how we view ourselves. It, above all other things, sexual purity is really the big topic, really the bullseye when it comes to sexual sin and uh, sin in general, really, I believe. The rest of chapter 6 and all of ch chapter 7 talk about our sexuality. 
I, I have a couple categories here just as a reminder for me, but I'll share them with you, is, is that uh, <clears throat> talking about it being the number one, sex out of whack, the number one area of temptation, the number one area of emotional turmoil, it ends up being the number one area of relational division. Uh, for many, it becomes the number one area of their greatest sin in their life. It becomes also the number one area that, that affects generational heartache. Generational heartache, where it's not just, not just how me, but then how it's passed down through the generations. And guys, we know this is true. We're going to be really bold and real straightforward. If you grew up in a house where your dad or your grandpa or somebody in your past was actively viewing pornography, it had an effect on you men. Let's call it what it is. And that effect is not good. Okay? And so there's generational heartache that comes with this idea of having our sexuality out of whack. Now, <clears throat> there's always a balance to that. Sex as God designed it can be the number one area of relational intimacy between two people, man and a woman. It can be the number one area of emotional connection. We're going to get into that. Emotional connection between a man and a woman. Husband and wife, let's be honest. I want to make sure we get our terms correct. Between a husband and a wife. The number one area of uh, physical connection between a husband and a wife. Uh, it can be, in a sense, a great success story. Uh, in your relationship, especially, especially uh, men, if you've struggled with sexual sin, and women, if you've struggled with sexual sin or been the victim of such, sex as God designed it can then be a great success or a great story of overcoming those things in the past. Uh, and it does this. It, leads, it will leave. It can be the number one area of a good and godly heritage uh, if we're doing it God's way. Now, as we begin, we want to put this principle out in front as a banner of what God says about sex. And there's three things. There's kind of three categories um, in regard to sexuality, in regard to sex between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife. The culture says yes. Unequivocally, our culture, the Greek culture, absolutely, we can see that, but we know how much has changed in how we view this, even in the last four, five, six decades, is huge. So our culture is continuing to say, yes, 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 in any capacity, yes, that's what our culture says. Go for it. I'm not saying that. Don't hear the wrong thing. I'm not personally saying that. I don't think the Word of God says that. I firmly believe that the Word of God doesn't say that. But our culture will encourage you and it will encourage your kids to just say, yes, go for it, whatever you want, with whoever you want, whenever you want, whatever capacity. There's means and ways that you don't have to pay the consequences. Our culture has separated sex and childbearing. Our culture has, uh, has separated sex and marriage. And so it just says, go for it, whatever you want to do. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. We don't live in that society as a believer. Maybe we live in the society, but we should not be living with that mentality. So the culture says, yes, for a long, long time, for centuries, really, the church has had a negative or a no message on sex. 
The church has had to know that it's downplayed. It's downplayed. We don't talk about it. We don't teach about it. We don't explain with our kids what's going on. So the, the church, and, and we're going to see that. You can see that even in the passage we're going to go through. There's a lot of, there's, there's some negativity there. So that negativity then becomes from a cultural perspective, from a worldly perspective, looking at what the church has to say. And I'm talking really fast. I drank a lot of coffee this morning. The culture looks at what the church has to say, society does, and they see the church say, no, no, the church is saying sex is bad. Sex is no to sex, no to sex. No, no, no. That's the message that most of us grew up with. That's the message that I grew up with. And nothing was ever really explained from a biblical perspective until right, <laughs> until, you know, premarital counseling, you know, or a few conversations, or the fact that my, I know for me personally, my life was off the rails. So then you start having frank conversations about what the Bible says. The Bible categorizes sex as holy. Let me say that again. The Bible categorizes God's design for sex between a husband and a wife is categorized as holy. Holy. That's how the Bible sees it. That's how God sees it. That's how he's designed it. So, in essence, then, under that, you could say yes in the covenant of marriage and no in any other format. So it is a yes and a no. And I think the church for too long has emphasized the no and is not taught on the yes side. Yes inside the covenant of marriage, husband and wife, no one in any other format. Now, Paul starts into this topic by laying a foundation, and all of chapter 7 kind of uh, is, is wrapped around this idea, but he starts in really in this chapter 6 by laying this foundation. Sometimes it's best to see where the writer is going at the end in order to see how he puts the pieces together from the beginning to the end and through the middle. So I just want to read you this verse, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, which is the end of the chapter. And this is really where the heart behind all that Paul has to say, and of course he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so really all of what God has to say as a, uh, as a setup here. He says this, For you are bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That's the, that's the, that, that's the, I want to start at the end to give us the starting blocks to go back to verse 12 and start all over. But that's where God really wants us to focus in. And so he puts the pieces together that leads up to this phrase, you are bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. A pattern that Paul has established, every issue is resolved then within this gospel statement. For you are bought at a price, that's a gospel statement. It's a reminder of Jesus' work on the cross, redeeming us from the slavery of sin, and to live a new life. You were, you were redeemed to live a new life. That includes your sexuality, your understanding, your beliefs. It should affect all of that. We're not just saved so that, so that we have a, you know, some kind of fire insurance so that when we die... We go to heaven. No, God redeemed us. He saved us and redeemed us so we could live a completely new life with a new identity. We talk a lot about identity. Ask yourself this question. How much of my identity 
today is really wrapped around my issues from the past. Because that's the point where we need to be free. That's the point where we need to be free. This little phrase here, you were bought at a price, that's a gospel statement. Jesus paid for you. His blood was the payment for your sin. And we're called to live a new life, and a life that glorifies God both physically and spiritually. Both physically and spiritually is what we're called to shoot for. That's the goal. Let's look at the problems then that are addressed and avail ourselves to the Holy Spirit so that he would work in our lives in these same areas of issue. 1 Corinthians 12, verse, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12 says this, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food, for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God has both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. First point I want to make is live by the right slogan. We, ha we have to be under, in a sense, we put it this way, we have to be under the right slogan. So you say, Mark, what are you, what are you talking about slogan? I don't even know what you're talking about. It doesn't say slogan. These phrases, these phrases here in verse 12 are Greece, uh, <coughs> Grecian slogans. They were slogans for the Corinthian believers. They would say these types of things. And so Paul takes and he capitalizes on their statements, but then brings this corrective encouragement of godliness. So let's look at them categorically. He says, all things are lawful for me. That's a Corinthian slogan to excuse their sin, to, to uh, put them in a category so they're saying, ah, it's okay. It's okay for me to do this. And then Paul says, no, no, no. All things are not helpful. All things are not helpful. That's his first corrective statement for that slogan. And the Corinthians would say, all things are lawful for me. Same thing. Paul says, all right, if you want to go again, he says, but I will not be brought under the power of any. I will not be brought under the power of any. It's a corrective statement to encourage godliness. Saying you don't have to be under the power of sexual sin. That's where this is leading. You don't have to be. Jesus paid so that you wouldn't have to be. Foods for the stomach and stomachs for foods. He says, ah, but God will destroy both it and them. See, the Corinthians took the same attitude with food into other areas, and that's why Paul is just using it as a point of reference. So just as sex is for the body, then the body is for sex. We know that foods, you know, uh, uh, the stomach's for food, food's for the stomach. Like when you get hungry, you go get something to eat. Right? That's just natural. That's just normal. And in that day, and let's be honest, in our day, and in the world that we live in, we live in a culture that kind of takes that same approach that they did. And they basically said, well, the body's made for sex, sex is made for the body, go for it. That's the world that we live in. If this is foreign to you, <laughs> if the culture by which and the understanding by which teenagers today are operating is foreign to you, I would encourage you to spend a little time and get educated as to where the future generations are going in this country especially. 
Just as sex is for the body, the body must be for sex. Just a natural urge that needs to be satisfied. That was their mentality. And so if that urge, if that, that sexual drive needed to be satisfied, the guys in Corinth, they'd, just, they'd go grab somebody. They would go, go to the corner. I mean, in our, we don't experience that because we don't live in a big city. But when I was growing up, if you were going to go down on Sprague in Spokane, that meant something. Because that's where the prostitutes hung out. Right? Let's just call it what it is. That meant something. It had an insinuation that, that everybody knew what you were going to do and what you were going to partake in. We live in that type of culture. If there's an urge, it's time to hook up. Now, everybody probably over the age of 55 says, what? What do you, what do you mean? Hook up? Last thing we hooked up was the camper to the truck. That's, that's, that's not what we're talking about. But everybody under the age of about 30 knows exactly what I'm talking about. They've heard it said. They know what it means. Talking about two couples just jumping in the sack together. The Greek mentality was to separate really the physical from the spiritual. That was the mentality. So in Corinth, sexual gratification was free, easy, available, and socially acceptable. Footnote 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That was the context of chapter 5 here that we went through a couple weeks ago, several weeks ago, where Paul makes a hard stand against it. But if it's free, easy, available, and socially acceptable, <clears throat> if you closed your eyes and didn't know that I was talking about Corinth, you would think that I was talking about America today. Because that's where we are. Paul comes against that pattern of thought with these new slogans. He comes against that pattern of thought with these new slogans. So he says straightforwardly there, look at it in uh, verse 13, now the body is not for sexual immorality. Underline that word not. The body is not for sexual immorality, but it's for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Then he pivots on to another aspect of the gospel story where he uses Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection as miraculous examples where he says in verse 14, and God both raised up the Lord, speaking of Jesus, and will raise us up also by his power. At this point, it's actually easy to see why the church has gotten stuck in the no category. We have these no statements, all things are not helpful, uh, but I will not be brought under the power of any. No, now the body is not for sexual. We hear these not, not, not statements, and it's easy for our minds to get stuck on this idea of no, 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 and we never teach or train the right way. We, we seldom do. I shouldn't say we never. I always try to make it a big point that I never say always and never, uh, especially when you're in conflict. Don't say always and never. We seldom, we seldom teach. We need to be careful we need to be careful about that. We need to stay in, <clears throat> careful also to stay in context of the whole book. In the whole book, from Genesis to Revelation, God's design is, is that sex is holy. I will repeat that phrase uh, both this week and next week multiple times. You might get tired of hearing it, uh, but we really need to imprint it on our hearts, in our minds. 
Number two, we need to live in biblical oneness. We need to live inside of what the Bible calls oneness. Paul goes on to make his point by asking a few questions. Look at verse 15. First question is, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now remember two weeks ago, we had 10 questions inside of 11 verses that Paul brings out. He brings out these questions to spur them in their thinking, spur them in their beliefs, and to correct them as you go along. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 13, is a wonderful answer to this question. Do you, know the, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Let's look at it real quick. I'll read it. Ephesians 2, verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when, even when we were dead in our trespasses, so that's where we were, circle that word were in Ephesians chapter 2, past tense, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. So do you not know that your members are, bodies are members of Christ? Absolutely, made us alive together with Christ, Ephesians says. Verse 6 there in Ephesians 2, and raised us up together that he, <clears throat> and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Another phrase that should be underlined or highlighted in your Bible. So do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Yeah, he showed the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Jesus, he paid for all of this for us. And we're invited into that relationship with him. And we're going to go through as we go through 1 Corinthians 6 and see that he's in us as well. Verse 8 is the one that all kids in Awana are going to memorize. For grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before that we should walk in him. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ, 1 Corinthians 6 says? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Verse 11 Ephesians 2, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, notice all the past tense and present tense changes here, you who are once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in, <clears throat> made in the flesh by hands, and that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of Covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And verse 13 in your Bible should be highlighted. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And you can say, ah, but now in Christ Jesus, I was once afar off. I was once alienated. I was once separated from Jesus. But now I've been brought near. Now I've been brought near. A new identity, a new understanding of who I am, who Christ is, what he's done for me, all because I've been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, every Christian's position, when I use that word position, I'm talking about who you are in Christ. Every Christian's position, you in Christ, 
Also Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians chapter 1. I love that verse. <clears throat> Every Christian has this position of being in Christ. The rub is, the rub is, is that not every Christian's practice lines up with Christ. I know that's true because that was true of me at times. I know that's true because that was really true of me at a certain time in my life. Where my practice was not even close to being representative of the position I was in Christ. That's the rub. That's where we get stuck. That's where we're up on jacks in our, in, in, in literally in our faith. No traction on the wheels. We're up on jacks. We don't know how to go forward. We don't know how to go backwards. We don't know what to do about it. That's the rub. That's the struggle. We'll get to that struggle. Our position in Christ and our practice, our daily living, must be in alignment they must be in alignment. In today's world, <clears throat> in today's world of sexual immorality, misalignment is one of two things. It's really one of two things. A, it's either the easiest thing to hide. Men know what I'm talking about. It's easy to hide. You want to look at stuff on the internet? It's wide open to you. And it is so easy to hide. I'm not promoting it. I'm saying it is what it is. Parents, you better have your heads on a swivel. Don't think that you have to wait until they're junior hires to start talking about stuff. You need to start talking with these kids. These kids experience more uh, digital <laughs> entertainment of every sort than any generation on the planet. All the rest of generations on the planet combined. No doubt. Let's just say that is without a, without a doubt the case. I was reading an article out of the Wall Street Journal yesterday that talks about, <clears throat> and they weren't just talking about pornography. They were talking about these, these, uh, this doctor, this psychiatrist has prescribed, uh, literally he's come up with these terms, a dopamine fast. A dopamine fast. Now, it probably would involve the addiction of pornography, especially online or any other format, uh, because that so hardwires into our brain uh, and changes our brain chemistry in that way. He's talking across the board, uh, digital stimulation across the board. Everything from social media to addiction to kids watching YouTube channels endlessly or watching, you know, TV or cartoons or what. Like back in my day, cartoons were Saturday morning. That's all you got, three channels. You miss it? Amen. <laughs> if you miss, when I was a kid, I'm trying to look at the youngest kid in the room, and it might be Benjamin. I'm not including the babies. Three channels, if you were lucky, if the weather was right, you had three channels. If you miss cartoons on a Saturday morning, Justice, give me, if you miss cartoons in my, when I was your age, you're younger, when I was your, if I miss cartoons on a Saturday morning, if I drug my feet, if I didn't get out of bed, if I screwed around while I was doing my chores, and I didn't get back in the house, it was over. That was it. 
And this lady over here said, get out of the house. Go pound a stick on a tree. Do something. And that was it. Today, today, not just kids, but I'm guarantee you, this all starts at a very young age. A very young age. Today, our young people, boys and girls, clear up into your 20s and 30s, we run, if you, if, I, I, would, I would not be surprised. Tell me if I'm wrong, Carrie. I would not be surprised if, if the majority of the younger generations today had a really, really high dopamine count just because there's just so much information coming their way. So much. It's insane. Video games, the whole thing. All right, I'm off on a rabbit trail. I promised myself... Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, April. Thank you. If you didn't hear what she said, the statistics show that actually the fastest growing demographic of pornography is with women, strangely enough. I don't get it, but it is what it is. And, uh, and these, this, these issues are across the board, men, women, age is not a factor, other than to say that younger kids uh, are probably getting a head start with the, qu the quantity of what they're seeing. So it's the easiest thing to hide. It's accepted under the banner. Let me go back to my topic, make sure I know what I'm talking about. In today's world, a, a sexual immorality or misalignment, I will put it this way, I'm going to use that term, a sexual misalignment is one of a few things. It's either the easiest thing to hide or it's accepted under the banner of loving tolerance. That would be the, third category, the second category. It's often accepted under the banner of loving tolerance. It's easier to give your kids an iPad and let them watch YouTube than to have to have them come with you and fix fence. It's easier to... to, to you know, give them the password to the computer or the TV uh, than it is to engage with them, take your own time. And uh, so it's kind of then accepted under this banner of loving tolerance. It's all right. Paul goes on to ask two more questions there in 1 Corinthians, wherever your finger is in the Bible. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He asks this question then. <clears throat> First question he asks, I should just find it here. This fan behind me keeps blowing my Bible closed. First question in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? The next question, he says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Now Paul's getting serious. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Are we going to mix Jesus in with a prostitute? Certainly not, he says. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. That phrase is the most quoted passage in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. The, 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 uh, for the two shall become one flesh. That's what I'm talking about. It's what God said in Genesis about Adam and Eve. It's the most quoted passage in the New Testament from the Old Testament. For the two should become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So we have these three questions. Do you not know that your members are bodies of, 
are members of Christ, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? I'm kidding you. Paul's like, uh, he's not shying away from the issues. This was relevant in their culture. It's relevant in today's world as well. They lead us really to three biblical conclusions. A, that we are one with Christ. B, that we cannot mix what is Christ's into sinful activity. And C, when two are joined together physically, they're joined together spiritually. When two people engage in sexual activity, there's a connection on more than a physical level. A deeper level is what Paul's saying. A spiritual level, as, you, as it were. There's a connection there on this deeper level. Inside the covenant of marriage, that's a good thing. It's holy, healthy, and it's a relational builder. Outside the covenant of marriage, sexual activity is sinful, unholy, unhealthy, and it's relationally eroding. It will tear relationships down. So what's interesting, in the right conduct, you take, take the broad activity, okay? And in the right context, it's good. In the wrong text, context, it's bad. And so in that wrong context, we're called then to repent. We're called to repent, come under God's authority, come back to where, either where we were or where we should be, move into a new category of where we should be, then in the right context, the very thing that's unhealthy is going to be actually what God uses in a way to make you healthy. That's the dynamics of it. And it's the same, that general principle plays out in a lot of different areas. Take the area of music. Something very precious to God. Completely ripped apart completely used in, a, in a, uh, a negative way by the enemy, and we look at what, you know, what music has come to. If you don't know what music has come to for younger people today, uh, do your research. Okay? It's all about sex. Every single song. The one that might not be is the poor me, I'm not getting this, I'm not getting that, I'm lonely, because he doesn't have, or she doesn't have, what all the rest of the artists are bragging about in their songs. So God creates music holy. It's spun by the enemy into something negative and derogatory and abusive and unholy. But on God's side of the equation, it's still holy. I went through that as a new believer. I took all of my old music, all the stuff I used to listen to, and said, hey, can't do it. Just pitched it in a fire. Moved in under conviction of the Holy Spirit into that area of, like, I just need to listen to worship music. Like, I got a lot of healing to do. I got a lot of recovery in the Lord, so to speak, in my spirit and in different areas of my life. Romans 1 describes this downward spiral condition of someone living carnally. Paul uses that word carnally in 1 Corinthians from previous messages, if you wonder where I get that word. But living worldly, Romans 1, 21, I'll just give you a few verses. 121, 124, 25, we'll skip then to 28. I'll give you the context in the middle. 
This downward spiral looks like this. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but become futile in their thoughts and foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's part of that downward spiral. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up to uncleanliness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. 25 says, Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. That's a volitional act. Who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and then they did this. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Sexuality in America and other parts of the world, it's not just us, but that's where we live, that is exactly, these verses exactly describing where our world is. They've chose to exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature, the sexuality of the creature, what that creature can give them or what they can get rather than the creator. Verse 26 and 27 describe this slide, this downward spiral even more so into sexuality of unnatural relations. And verse 28 picks it up here, even as they did not take, <clears throat> even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, etc., etc. The list of sins continue on. Read for yourself in Romans chapter 1. That's what this downward spiral looks like. That's where it's going. We live in this hookup culture. I told you I'd come back to this where sex of any flavor is extremely casual and cheap. We live in a culture where having sex with somebody in our, in our society is really not that uh, more formal than exchanging phone numbers. And you older people look at me and think, really? Uh, really. That's where it's at. Let's just be real with where it is. Paul's extremely straightforward. And I am intentionally choosing to be extremely straightforward in that same likeness because <clears throat> our world has got major problems when it comes to sexuality. The great news is we have all the answers. And that's where we're going to go. All right. We live in this hookup culture. Uh, it kind of looks like this, if you're a little bit unfamiliar. Uh, for non-believers, uh, they bounce from one relationship to another. They bounce, 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 stacking up the pain of this hookup and breakup idea that's out there. Uh, this is not just young people, by the way, so I don't want to just pick on teenagers or young adults. Uh, it's really prevalent in our culture all the way through. But they stack up this pain. They go from one person to the next to the next to the next. Uh, I'll tell you what we told our kids is uh, it teaches you, if you embrace that, it teaches you to be really good at leaving people. That's what it teaches you. This hookup, breakup culture teaches you to be really good at, on one hand, breaking up on the back end, and on the other end, you know what it teaches you? It teaches you to be disingenuous. It teaches you to be somebody that you're not. It teaches you to look different than you really are. That's, and it's all accentuated by social media, by the way. Social media is a great platform to look. I could be, I could 
I could be somebody totally different on social media than who I am. It's all there. It doesn't cost a dime. A little bit of time. Maybe a lot of time, really. But that's what this hookup, breakup culture is all about. These people never pause to consider if the person there <clears throat> that they're with is really fit to be a spouse. It's honestly the furthest thing from their mind. Inside the church, don't think that we get a pass because we show up here on Sundays. And um, quite honestly, I think that um, we probably battle with this a lot more than the world does. But Christians who get kind of caught up in the same trap, and I was one of those, uh, they're racked with guilt, shame, condemnation, and a sense of being trapped. They find themselves at a crossroads of whether to come clean or hide their sin. That's where a lot of us, and I'm sure many of us here, have been. We find ourselves at some point in our lives, I was 19, we find ourselves at some point in our lives at this crossroads. Do I keep hiding? Do I keep pulling a fig leaf up like Adam and Eve? Do I keep, to keep hiding from God while I'm embracing a life of sin and thinking that it's going to be okay? Or do I drop it and allow God to cover me and allow God to cover my sin and allow God to deal with my shame and allow God to deal with my condemnation? And to allow God to deal with my guilt. Oftentimes it plays out this way for folks in the church. As they be begin to believe that they're, <clears throat> because they've sinned, uh, that the, they need to make it right by making a sinful relationship holy by getting, just go ahead, let's just go ahead and hook up and get married. Like we're in sin, let's just, you know, Whatever. I'm not saying <clears throat> there's an aspect of this, and, and I want to be really careful uh, with how I bring it across. I'm not saying they shouldn't ever get married, but I'm saying this is their first order of importance is to be right with God as individuals. That's the first order of business. You're responsible for your sin. Fundamental principle from Genesis to Revelation. God deals with you about your sin. He dealt with me about my sin and then walked me out in it on how to, how to deal with it beyond that. That's the fundamental principle. Each person in that scenario should deal with their own. They should be right with God before they make any move as an individual. Second thing is, is they should probably really go through a process of discerning whether the, they or the other person is mature enough even to get married. Am I where I need to be to go ahead and take this step? There's a knee-jerk reaction, though, as I said, that because I've done this and, and in guilt and in shame that I, I have to make it right. The real key is, is let God make it right and watch where he takes it. Discern with confirmation is the third point that I have. Discern with confirmation if the other person is ready to fulfill their role in a biblical marriage, and that's till death do us part. Uh, again, God sees sex as holy. Can you recover if you've sinned sexually? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
I stand up here, I, I, straightforward, that's me. So I'm not pulling the wool over anybody's eyes or preaching to anybody that I haven't walked through in this regard. I get it. I understand it. I've lived that pain. I've also lived the recovery. I've also seen God do miraculous things in my life because of obedience to following his word in these things. So God sees sex as holy. The biblical yes to sex is really done this way where two people become one in covenant. There's a new spiritual union. The Bible calls that the bond of marriage. We're going to see in the next chapter, there's two words in chapter 7 that stand really, they kind of get glossed over. The one word is bond, the other word is bondage. Not the same. The union of marriage, the bond of marriage, the Bible calls it followed shortly thereafter by the physical bond of intimacy, this couple coming together, getting married, ceremony, white dress, the whole thing is a spiritual union first in God's eyes, a physical union second, which is actually both, as Paul describes here in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, actually it's both physical and spiritual. Uh, the question, kind of rhetorical question, did you ever see young newlyweds that didn't want to leave the party early? Anybody? No hands are going up. Nobody wants to vote. Everybody's scared to death of the question. Every wedding I've gone to, they, the bride and the groom, like they're like, do we have to eat the cake? Do, do we have to open the presents? Let's get out of here. Right? They're looking forward to part B because uh, part A is over with. And they're looking, what are we giggling for? It's true. You know it's true. Were you not in the same spot? I was in the same spot. I just wanted to get out of there. Right? I want to get this show on the road. My wife is laughing, and it's time for a story. <laughs> There's a person in this room that was at our wedding who was the culprit to a wonderful practical joke and uh, was, was part of a twosome that took our rental car and wrapped it with a whole roll of fishing line. So when we were trying to get out of the church early, we literally had to sit there and cut, cut, cut. They wrapped that whole car, fishing line. Couldn't even, you couldn't even wiggle the door. And I won't tell you what his name is, but his initials are Brent Johnston. <laughs> it was a great joke. We laughed with it and had a good time with it. Uh, what wasn't funny, what wasn't funny is this. We were cruising through West Virginia, and something exploded under the hood. And we thought, well, did we blow a tire? Something just happened to the motor. But nothing shook, nothing, gauges were fine. We pulled over, opened the hood to find balloons under the hood, and one of them had popped... We never knew it was true. Scared me to death. Thank you. Talk about excitement on the honeymoon, right? It's okay to laugh. It's all good. It's been a long time. We've laughed about that quite a bit. Young couple gets married. Spiritual union first. Physical union second. This is God's way. This is God's holy way. His yes to sex, followed by a lifetime then of one flesh living. That's physical and spiritual. 
Before we finish the last few verses in uh, chapter 6, I want to say this, because this needs to be really clear, and I think this is super fuzzy in our culture, super fuzzy even in the church, Uh, but God has three general purposes for sex between a husband and a wife. Uh, And one stands out above the other. And I realize and I want to be sensitive to uh, issues between a husband and wife that that cause division, uh, whether they be medical or whatever else. Um, And so I just want to be sensitive to that. But in regard to our sex with our spouse, God's purposes for sex is first and foremost unification. That's the oneness piece. Oneness between a married man and a woman. Unification is God's purpose primarily for sexual activity. Uh, B, procreation. Adding generations and blessings to the family. Procreation. So unification, you get all vacations other than a vacation, right? Maybe a vacation will come. Unification, procreation, and uh, I'll say it right up front, recreation. So unification, oneness between a married man and a woman. Procreation, adding generations and blessings to the family. Kids, adding kids on. And uh, C, recreation, pleasure, enjoyment, and satisfaction in that one, uh, in that one relationship. Verse 18 goes on to say this, and this is the warning that comes with it all. And this is where we're going to end. This is Paul's admonition to all of us, really. Flee sexual immorality. Uh, get out of there. Run. Every sin that a man does is outside his body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. So God is categorizing sexual sin differently. Not sure any penalty or future judgment for unconfessed sin would be any more or less than anything else, but he categorizes it differently because he says everything else is outside the body, but sexual sin is to your own body, and he's building a case for that. Verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, you are not your own, and you are not your own? Paul's saying here, the Lord's saying here, uh, your body is not your own. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom has been given to you from God. Verse 20 says, For you are bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. God's way for you to deal with temptation is run, baby, run. All the guys are looking at me saying, Ah, okay, run, run. No, no, no. This is not gender specific. Okay, do we get that? Because the guys kind of look at it one way. Go ahead, Tim. You flee. That's right. Level three, sexual immorality. Thank you. I should have had the old red zone. You're in the red zone. You're in the evacuation zone when sexual immorality comes your way. So run. Run, run, run. Why? Because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God is riding around in you, as it were. You are his possession. We are his possession. And on a practical note for application, uh, a question, how do we then glorify God? Because he says, hey, you need to glorify God in your body. How do we do that? 
What's the example from the Old Testament that's the most predominant? Joseph. Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, made an excuse, ah, I think he died, whatever. He was his dad's favorite, so there was this, all this turmoil then between the brothers and the dad for a bit. But eventually they kind of got over it. Joseph ends up down in Egypt, ends up working for a guy named Potiphar, rises up through the ranks out of slavery, becomes Potiphar's number one dude. We need to pull a Joseph. Joseph, when he was approached by Potiphar's wife, he fled. He didn't make any bones about it. Get out of there. He left. He sacrificed his coat, his reputation, his job, and his freedom. The question is, are we willing to, when it comes to sexual immorality issues, are you willing to sacrifice your coat, your reputation, your job? Are you willing to sacrifice your freedom to do what God clearly says? That's how Joseph handled it. We need to pull a Joseph. Like Joseph, are you willing to do that? Men, as we close out here, the worship team wants to kind of prepare themselves. I'll just list out a couple of things that I had for both the guys and the gals here. Uh, guys, for us and our boys, sometimes that flea looks this way. It's avoiding the stare. It's avoiding the second look. It's being cognizant of when the Holy Spirit says, uh, don't do that, that we don't do that. That's a flea. You might not be pedaling your feet, but you can move your eyes. You can change your location in the room. You can leave the room. Don't stare. Don't get the second look. Don't flirt. Don't entertain a flirt. See Proverbs. Right? Too many times, too many times, and this is, this is where the rubber meets the road, fellas. Too many times, a little extra compliment sure feels nice, doesn't it? A little extra uh, glance across the room kind of makes us feel good. We are visually oriented to the nth degree. We're turbocharged in the brain by what we see, smell, and touch. Say that again. Turbocharged in our brain by what we see, what we smell, and what we touch. Guard our senses. Fellas, teach your boys to guard their senses. Do that by demonstrating you yourself, me myself, guarding my senses. That's how we flee. That's how we deal with these temptations. We're not called to live in isolation. We're called to deal with the issue. And sometimes that flea doesn't mean necessarily running up into the mountains. Most of the time it doesn't. It means moving your eyes. It means moving your feet. It means not uh, engaging in flirtatious activity or entertaining it. Job made a covenant with his eyes. Think about that. Job says, the book of Job says that Job, the man, made a covenant with his eyes to not look lustfully at a woman. Think about the context of when that was written. Think about how ladies in that day dressed. They were as modest as ever in that day. <laughs> Job made a covenant. You know why? Because the eyes can look right through the clothing. Let's be real. And your mind can entertain it. Let's be real about that. 
So we make an, a covenant with our eyes. Really, you're making a covenant with the Lord that you're not going to look lustfully. So Jesus says, if you even look lustfully at a woman, you're committing adultery, committing fornication. Be men of the word, men of honor, men of integrity, committed to your spouse, or if you're unmarried, to your future spouse. Do you look at it that way? Young fellas, be committed. Boys, be committed to your future spouse. If God has somebody for you to marry, ladies, young gals, if God has somebody for you for your future, be committed to them now. Don't go through a season. You don't have to go through the season that I went through. I'll just tell you that. You don't have to. I know your parents. I know they don't want you to, and they're willing to lead you in that. Be, but be committed. It comes with you guys getting a vision. Parents, it comes with you guys getting a vision for your kids, and, and you demonstrate that by how you live. Be committed to your future spouse if you're unmarried. Be a Titus 2 man. Be a 1 Corinthians 16 man. Be strong. Be vigilant. You want a motto, fellas? Go with this motto. One wife for life. One wife for life. That's God's design for you. One wife for life. Ladies, for you and your gals, for your girls. You're turbocharged relationally through your emotions and your sense of security. Don't let the devil trip you up in those areas. Don't let the enemy come in and insert uh, the flirtatious looks, the, the, the compliments. Have spatial awareness. Consider your modesty, how it affects you, how it affects your girls, how it affects other people around you. Consider these things. I'm not here to tell you how to dress. I'm not telling you what clothes to, to, to wear or where to buy them. That's not my role. That's not my job. But you know intuitively, ladies, that how you dress affects how you see yourself and how other people see you. Intuitively, you know that that's true. We should be dressing, ladies, we should be dressing for the eyes of one if we're married. Young gals, when it comes to your modesty, you shouldn't be dressing for the eyes of one. You're unmarried, the Bible says. You're unmarried. So you have anybody to show anything to. Consider your own modesty and how it affects both you and your own, <clears throat> your own view of yourself and how it affects then, of course, other people. Ladies, be women of the word. Be that Titus 2 woman for one another. You guys understand the reference to Titus 2 where it says older men engage with the younger men. Older men teach and train, bring up and disciple the younger fellows. That's a Titus 2 man. It says the same thing for the ladies. Titus 2 woman, older ladies, teach and train the younger ladies. Dive into it. Study the passage in chapter 2, the epistle of Titus. Be women of the word. Be that Titus 2 woman for each other. Be the woman that First Peter describes in chapter 3 where the things that are really important are the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is, uh, Peter describes it this way, it's very precious in the sight of God. Peter uses that phrase just a handful of times. If you guys remember a year ago, we were preaching through First and Second Peter and he uses this phrase about certain things that are really precious 
in the sight of God. They're really important to God. They're really valuable. God sees you, ladies, and your character as extremely, extremely important. Don't let the world tell you otherwise. Find your identity in Christ and Christ alone. If you struggle with identity struggles, let God rebuild your thinking of who you are. Can't emphasize it enough. We get lost in a fog of worldly thinking just like everybody else. I'm no exception. Sexual immorality has had an effect in all of us in some way. In some way. We've either engaged, we've been affected by other people's activities. Heaven forbid we've been victim of that. We're not called to be victims. You don't have to be a victim. God has a renewed sense for you in that. You don't have to be a victim of somebody else's sin. You can have a new identity in Christ. And you can be freed from that guilt. You can be freed from that pain. The great news is is that regardless of your current situation or your past situation, God has a plan for you to deal with this area of sin. I know it's true. I've lived the truth of these pages and these words and God's principles here in 1 Corinthians 6. If you've been caught in this trap, I plead with you three things. First, first, the forgiveness and freedom that only comes from a relationship with Christ. That's where we start. We, we start by seeking God's forgiveness, seeking God's healing. We can be free from them, old traps. Second, the forgiveness that comes or is extended to the other person in that relationship. It is important, I'll say imperative, that we walk this out. It was key in my story that I had to both be forgiven and seek forgiveness from the person that I had sinned against. And break that bond, break that 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 oneness that was done in sin. So the forgiveness from or to extended out to that other person in that relationship. Third, third is to embrace the new life that Jesus calls us to. That's walked in faith, knowing that God has a better plan, a hope and a future, that we're not left alone, that we're not abandoned. God has a great plan for you. Young people, God has a great plan for you. Embrace it. Parents, God has a a, a great plan for you and your family. Embrace that. Live it out before your kids. Dig into the Word. See what it says. I'd go so far as to, don't take my Word, don't, don't take what I have to say, like I'm hoping in this moment and all through every Sunday morning, that you're just listening to the Holy Spirit, not me. Like what is God saying to you is what's really important. What is God saying to you that's really going to give you traction in your Christian walk? What is God saying to you that's going to change the trajectory of your life? What's God saying to you that's going to change the trajectory of your family? That's what's important. Older people, don't sit on the bench. Retired folks, don't, don't ride the bench on this. 
These parents in this room and in this fellowship and in this community, they need, they need your input to live godly. That's why we're called to be community. That's why a multi-generational church is God's plan. Because as young parents, they need your discipling. They need your input. They need your counsel. They need your prayers. They need your covering in that way. Don't ride the bench on this. Just saying, ah, my years are past. I raised my kids. Glad it's over. It's not over. I don't care how old you are. If you're walking and have breath in your lungs and you're a Christ follower, God has a point and a purpose for you. Use it. Dare I say, finish strong. Finish strong in your own walk with Christ. Finish strong engaging in other people's walk with Christ. That's how we do it as a community. That's what God's design is. is to be real and transparent. Open and honest. Not glorifying in our sin. But not avoiding talking about the toughness of it all. And help these young people to go a different direction than where you went. If you went the wrong direction. If you followed Christ, if you live by these principles, if you were fortunate enough, blessed enough, I'll reuse a different word, if you were blessed to grow up in a Christian home and walk these principles out, then use that to continue to encourage other people. Can't be silent, you guys. We can't be silent. This is the number one. You want to talk about a pandemic? Sexual immorality is more than a pandemic. And it's going to take more people out in so many different ways than any virus or disease ever would. Let's worship the Lord together.